So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. And you are listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, Canada's greatest environmental news hour. We are also potentially on your lovely local community radio station. My name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stephen Christian Erlo- er, I'm uh, What am I? Stephen I'm... Christian Learning <laughs> Nopestetter. And I am the token woman. Just here for that soft, soft undertone. Actually, it's less soft undertone, more so like vocal fry is right. is really more so what you're getting from an auditory standpoint. And uh, we're going to do some environment news. Stefan has interviewed Aaron Mackey from Climate Justice. U of T. U of T. That's the University of Toronto. Yeah. They're speaking about the divestment movement. The next phase of the divestment movement, mostly. What's yeah. the next phase of the, the divestment movement? You have to listen to the interview to find out. And this is this is... Convincing people to stop investing in fossil fuels. Institutions. Banking institutions, financial institutions. Well, it started with U of T's endowment, which last year they agreed to begin divesting, although apparently it won't be done until 2030. But anyways, but with that sort of checked off in a slow way, the question is where do divestment campaigners move on from there? And it's it's a great conversation. In capitalism, am I right or am I wrong that as soon as you have an institution, you're investing. I mean, if you're not investing, you're losing money. Well, actually, technically, if you're not investing, you're divesting. And on that note, before we get into this climate news, Stefan and Lauren, we're going to speak briefly about the history of the, div- the divestment movement itself. Or really, I just wanted to get your perspective, Lauren, about you know your entry into climate change through the divestment movement, especially on campus, because... You know, here I am talking to someone who's they're in their fifth year of U of T, has been working in divestment the last couple of years at U of T, but you know, you and I were working on it when we were in university, and so it's been a fight for quite some time, uh, well longer than the five years that we requested in, during our chanting phases. So I was curious about sort of what your perspective was on the movement and your experience in the divestment movement on campus. You know, when you sort of started out. Yeah, yeah, back in the olden days. Um, so yeah, my introduction to the world of kind of like politicized climate justice organizing was through on-campus fossil fuel divestment movements. Now, obviously, the concept of of divestment and organizing around divestment does predate that. Like like most things in the climate justice world, it does have its roots in like organizing from indigenous land protectors, of course, like that needs to be said, said at the outset. But um, but yeah, at the time, my foray into youth and campus climate justice organizing was was from was through divestment. Um, and like low key, this sounds so uncool to say now it was because I watched the like 350 Bill McKibben do the math documentary um, that was making the rounds at the time. It was groundbreaking. It was like, wow, climate justice and math, the same thing. Like it was, and basically the conceit of that documentary was like, it was intended to kick off a big multi-campus network wide movement of young people pushing for their institute for the institutions they attended to divest their holdings from the fossil fuel industry and the whole idea around doing the math was like a math numbers econo- economics money but also because it was the idea that like there is a strict carbon budget that we're operating within and every year that we don't sort of like start to actively reduce our carbon emissions we are we're we're taking away from that we're we're diminishing the remaining carbon budget if that makes sense from a sentence standpoint, that was hard to listen to. I'm, I apologize to listeners, but, um, yeah, so I got my start. Oh, geez. That would have been 11 or 2012. I can't quite remember, but basically it was like, yeah, watch this documentary over the summertime, came back in the fall, was taking part in this really awesome 
seminar class hosted by, if you're a listener, Dr. Brad Walters, shout out, um, who hosted this really great, like it was literally called like environmental activism. And we would spend the first several weeks of the course um, digging into theory. So like Saul Alinsky, blah, 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 um, around organizing. And then like the second half of the course was like, okay, now like plan a campaign. And myself and two other students were like, Hey, divestment's this new big thing. It sounds really exciting. It's a way to take, um, concepts around climate organizing and make it feel really tangible and immediate to our institution and our lives. Um, and, and it felt possible and it felt doable and like I said, tangible, because I went to an institution that was only like, two, like it was between 20 and 2,400 students. We were really small, really intimate. I knew the university comptroller because he hired me to do summer school work. I knew the president because he would like regularly host events at his house and like we would go to those events. So like we knew these people. So it felt like it was a much more doable and surmountable challenge because it's like, well, I mean, I know Rob Campbell, he's not a bad guy. He has to agree with us. And like, we we were really quickly able to get a lot of student buy-in, really quickly able to get a lot of faculty buy-in, which felt so important at the time because it's like, well, if your economics department head is telling you that fossil fuel divestment's a good idea, well, then of course you're gonna divest because like you, as somebody who runs a university must put your faith in academia if you're like literally paying this man over a hundred thousand dollars a year to like mold our minds as students so anyway that's how I got into it I loved it it was invaluable experience not only as an organizer because it it taught me really rapidly that like quote unquote environmentalism and quote unquote climate action wasn't just like making sure you had enough trash cans on campus it's like no this is a political issue and this is systemic um and it was a really sort of like really good case study in, in understanding those concepts as a young organizer. And then it introduced me to a number of like other groups. And anyway, it's the reason I have my job. It's the reason like I can make money and do what I do for a living and get to like participate in the workforce in a way that feels meaningful and important and valuable. So like, we'll always be so grateful to divestment organizers and the divestment movement. And it's also just like so cool to see how far they've come because at a certain point, yeah, it felt like divestment was never going to happen in Canada. And now we're finally seeing institutions like U of T do it. And it's all thanks to these amazing young people that were so tenacious. Pakistan, which has a population of 220 million people, is one-third underwater right now after intense rains that followed brutal heat waves. 1,100 people have died from the flooding so far, and 33 million people have been displaced. One million homes and 2,000 miles of road have been destroyed, and over one million animals have died. West Moberly, here in Canada, West Moberly had to settle out of court with British Columbia over the Site C hydroelectric dam that the nation was opposing because it went against the agreements of their treaty from 1899. West Moberly apparently realized that nothing was going to stop the construction of the dam, so they settled for some money and land equal to the size of the area the dam will flood or destroy. A case study out of the Pembina Institute has found that it will not be difficult to end essentially all methane, all methane emissions from the oil sands by 2030. The summary reads, quote, A significant portion of greenhouse gas emissions associated with oil and gas production can be reduced through addressing methane. In addition to helping ensure that the oil and gas sector does its fair share in meeting Canada's climate commitments rapidly tackling methane, which has almost 100 times the warming impact of carbon dioxide, will be crucial to staving off near serious near-term impacts of warming. Further, methane abatement is low cost and much can be done using existing technologies. The Government of Canada has committed to capping and reducing overall greenhouse gas emissions from the oil and gas sector. Part of this commitment includes reducing methane by at least 75% from 2012 levels by 2030. The Pembina Institute has recommended that commitment be upgraded to achieving near-zero methane emissions by 2030. This study, based on a real-world example of methane policy in one specific region of Alberta, shows that strong regulations can achieve that target in a relatively short amount of time and without having any negative impact on levels of production in the industry. The area covered by the study was Peace River. 
the province cracked down on methane emissions from oil facilities in 2014 because of the smell. They forced companies to stop venting methane. They put a limit on non-routine flaring, and they forced companies to do monthly checks on methane leaks. This allowed them to cut methane emissions to almost zero without impacting oil production. And finally, a study out of Stanford this summer concluded that electrifying all energy sectors worldwide and producing, the elect- producing that electricity from clean, renewable sources, not including nuclear, would cut energy use in half and cut energy costs by 63%. The transition would cost $62 trillion U.S. dollars, but would save $11 trillion a year, thereby paying for itself in six years. The study was led by Mark Z. Jacobson, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford, who writes in The Hill, quote, We did not include technologies that did not address air pollution, global warming, and energy security together. It did not include bioenergy, natural gas, fossil fuels, or bioenergy with carbon dioxide capture, direct air capture of carbon dioxide, blue hydrogen, or nuclear power. We concluded that these technologies are not needed and provide less benefit than those we included. I feel like those four stories taken together give a pretty good picture of where we're at with climate change right now. The floods in Pakistan, you know, along with the extreme heat in China and a loss of drinking water in in Jackson, Mississippi, show how those who've contributed some of the least to its harms are experiencing some of the worst of its impacts. Not to mention the ways in which the paltry sum that Canada has committed uh, to Pakistan and the failure to support residents of Jackson, who are 80% black, show the ways in which racism will continue to impact who the world respects as victims. And then in BC, with West Moberly and the Sightsee Dam, we see how how the emissions-only outlook leads to a recreation of colonial injustices. Whereas the last two stories seem to pretty clearly point to at least a part of the path forward. Oil companies are taking in massive profits, and it would be unconscionable to not expect them to put some of that windfall to immediately end their methane emissions. As we've seen time and time again, they undercount their methane emissions already. And then, finally, the rest of that money should be taxed and put to work towards that $62 trillion we apparently need to get this work done. But where I think the question is going... You know, if, if, if the conversation a little bit, you know, that we're ha- we'll have in a second with Aaron is about where divestment is going. If I think the second question we have to ask ourselves is where does this push for extremely fast decarbonization go? And how do we do it in a way that doesn't fall into these sort of pitfalls that the Sightsee Dam has shown that, that recreates these sort of colonial structures? You know, how do we manage to connect communities with the energy that's being produced around them? How do we ensure that the benefits of the energy being produced goes to communities first and foremost? And how do we manage to actually uplift those who are have been you know, pushed down by colonials and racism with the efforts to create energy sovereign nations and, and peoples and to circle back to the very beginning, ensure that places like Pakistan get the support not only to rebuild, but also to decarbonize. You know, and we talk a lot about uh, about loss and damage and these other things on these big macro stages when we talk about COP, which is coming up. So I'm sure we'll get back to it in the fall. But this is the kind of example of the kind of damage that we're seeing. And Canada gives $5 million to Pakistan, despite the fact that 33 million people have been been displaced. The entirety of the Canadian population have been displaced in Pakistan, and Canada's response is $5 million. That, That is where we're at. You know, we have the path forward that we can see, but we are being held back by the systems of injustice and colonialism and environmental racism that have built where we exist now. And navigating that will, if the success in navigating that, I think will determine whether or not we are actually successful in tackling climate change in a real way, or if we are, will create some weird mix of eco-fascism and, you know, climate capitalism. All right. And with that, we are going to go for another music break and return with Stefan's conversation with Aaron Mackey from Climate Justice U of T 
about the fossil fuel divestment campaign, where it's going. are here with Aaron Mackey, the lead organizer with Climate Justice U of D, or a lead organizer with Climate Justice U of D. Yeah, either one's fine. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. We are talking about the next phase of the divestment movement, yes. which is honestly super exciting for me. I left U of T now over 10 years ago, and the idea that there would be a second phase at the time didn't feel super likely. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there has been this announcement by U of T last year is fantastic news, but of course the work is not to be done. Um, And so that's what we're going to dive into in this show or in this interview. To start though, for folks who don't know, can you give us a bit of a background of the U of T divestment campaign and then what was announced last year? Yeah, absolutely. So U of T's endowment previously, they were investing in fossil fuels and the divestment movement is something that has been going on for, as you mentioned, many, many years. Leap as a group, which is the group that we were previously, well, we were previously named, they founded, were founded in 2012. So this movement has been going on for a very long time at this point. And last October, U of T officially announced that they would divest their endowment, which is very, very exciting. So they said they would stop investing in fossil fuels by 2030. And that's a fantastic and really large achievement. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about the fact that, A, it took 10 years, but there was a lot of students along the way. You Many, many people who came in and out and who played active roles. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge just like the time and effort and energy that students and student activists put into making that possible because it is not something that they would have done on their own, clearly. But now that we are here and we kind of have this new exciting momentum, We have, as a group, we decided to do a bit of a rebrand this year, and we're no longer called LEAP U of T. We're now called Climate Justice U of T. And part of this was an effort to, again, move into this next phase and next chapter of our campaign in the divestment movement, but also just LEAP. We were named after an organization founded by Naomi Klein. The organization doesn't exist anymore. So we decided that we wanted to be in the now and, you know, kind of picks a name that more aligned with our current ideals and where we're going in the future. And I'm really excited about the next step and next things that are happening. I think that there's still obviously a lot of work to do. But again, I think it's really important, especially in the climate space, to acknowledge your wins and to celebrate them as much as you can. But then also, you know, continue on and move forward because the fight is never, never done. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Celebrate every victory. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> has got to be one of the founding principles of this movement. You know, I have celebrated the death of Keystone XL at least three different times. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So the part of the work, you know, we talked previously yeah. before we started recording of the show was there's actually more divestment work to be done, really straight up investment work. So maybe you yeah. can tell us our tele-listeners, where we are in regards to U of T actually divesting and yeah. what the next steps are. Absolutely. So obviously, so U of T has committed to divesting their endowment by 2030. Um, and, you know, that's a couple of years away from now. So we, um, as a group, will definitely be monitoring and making sure that um, U of T holds true to those ideals. But the actual structure of U of T is a little bit more complicated in the sense that there are three separate federated colleges, that their pensions and endowment plans are not part of the larger university structure. And so they are completely immune to the statement that U of T made in October. So Trinity College, Victoria College, and St. Michael's College, they all have separate endowments. And it means that they are still investing currently in fossil fuels. And so the next phase of this campaign is to divest the federated colleges which hopefully will be soon. We, there's a lot of momentum, especially coming off of U of T, announcing that they will for them to get on board and to do the right thing and kind of join what has already been happening. And also specifically at Victoria University, uh, last June, they put out a statement basically saying that they were going to look into the potential for divestment and what it would look like at Victoria University. So kind of things that we've seen U of T do previously in regards to its broader endowment. So they're using very similar tactics. But I think there's a lot of pressure and there's a big precedent set that, you know, U of T itself 
said that they are no longer going to be invested in fossil fuels. And it really does not make sense to have these separate smaller universities that are still part of the larger, larger college to be continuing to invest and, you know, further the climate crisis. But I do think that there has been a little bit less emphasis on them because their endowments are smaller, obviously, than the broader university. But that doesn't mean that they're not sizable chunks and that they don't matter and that they don't send a message. And, you know, I think if U of T wants to continue to brand itself as this climate positive, future forward thinking campus and space, then it needs to have not only the broader U of T community, but also the federated colleges on board. Yeah, honestly, despite having gone to U of T, I did not think about that or know that. And to be honest, I'm surprised that Victoria College hasn't already done it because like I'm going to throw a little bit of shade here <laughs> and very regional shade. So I apologize to everyone who listens to the show is not in U Toronto or even U of T, but it does not surprise me that Trinity or St. Mike's hasn't done it. It does surprise me that the Vic hasn't done it yet. Mm -hmm. Like I, you sort of would imagine, you know, the way that they talk about themselves or think about themselves as a college, they'd be out ahead of this. And the fact that they've even lagged behind U of T, the institution, which, you know, Absolutely. has like the monk school of global affairs. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, is bonkers to me. A hundred percent. And I think there's, yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. And there are a lot of organizers with Leap U of T and now Climate Justice U of T who are students of Victoria College. And we have, that's kind of the college that we had been targeting our efforts from the get-go because originally, you know, we thought it would make more sense and would be easier actually to get a federated college to divest than to get the U of T broader to divest. But unfortunately, not unfortunately, but it happened the other way around. And I think that, you know, works out in our favor. And I do think it is very likely that we're going to see Victoria College divest in the future. Hopefully, fingers crossed sometime this year, that would be amazing and fantastic. And the thinking is that if Victoria College does it, then the other two federated colleges would follow behind them. But I think that we are in a really critical moment and there's a lot of momentum and a lot of people on campus who, A, didn't know about this, but then once they hear about it, they have the same reaction you do where you're like, it just doesn't make sense, right? To have to say U of T is divested, but not have it its entirety. I think that there's a bit of a contradiction there that they definitely need to iron out. Iron out. Yeah, for sure. And if you're an alumni of either St. Mike's or Victoria College, or you know, specifically St. Mike's or Trinity, and are mad that I am throwing shade <laughs> at you, call up your registrar and tell them you're alumni and you want them to divest, and I will stop judging you. Honestly, <laughs> if Trinity leads the way. I'll be impressed. I will yeah. I will give my first kudos <laughs> to Trinity College ever if they are yes. the first ones of the three to Absolutely. divest. Absolutely. I think there's also, there's a big contradiction because at Trinity, I wasn't necessarily part of it, but I know friends who are in Trinity and who are part of the climate space and that they offer a lot of ones programs. So courses for first year students focused on sustainability and things in that area. And they do have a lot of professors who that's what they specialize in and they're out of the Trinity, Trinity College. So again, there's another contradiction happening there where there's a lot of really great work that's being done, but it's kind of undermined by the fact that the broader college and, you know, institution that they're part of is continuing to invest in fossil fuels. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So now that I've probably alienated a good percentage of my listeners by talking about <laughs> inter-college inter politics, let's move to the more campus-wide work that y'all are up to. So yeah, what else are you doing? as you shift the sort of focus, obviously that's maintaining as a thing, but you're doing some other things. So what else do you yeah, want? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, hopefully if Victoria College divests in this next year, you know, the divestment issue at U of T specifically will be no longer, which would be amazing and fantastic, but it doesn't mean that our work would end. There's lots of other things that we are focusing on and projects and campaigns that we have. So this year in particular, we are launching a campaign called RBC Off Campus in partnership with Baking on a Better Future. And they have connections to a bunch of different schools across Canada. And essentially, RBC has a separate space, like a separate branch out of U of T's campus. They lease it and give U of T a lot of money. And RBC sponsors lots of events on campus and gives U of T lots of money and donations. And our goal with this campaign is to disrupt that pipeline and damage their reputation and make sure that people know that this big institution is financing the fossil fuel, like financing fossil fuel infrastructure and essentially making sure that these pipelines can be built. Because they're, although, you know, the someone has to pay for all this, someone has to front and load the bill for all of these things that are happening. And the five big Canadian banks are doing that. They're bankrolling, you know, all of these projects. But RBC specifically is the worst of the worst. 
in the sense that they are not only bankrolling these pipelines, but they are also violating indigenous sovereignty and playing a really big role in things that we as a group at U of T, but as a general member of society, I don't think that they should be doing. And the Banking on a Better Future's whole mission is to get people to switch their bank. And so this is more of a broader community-based initiative to disrupt their image and their campaign and make people aware of the damage and harm that they're causing. Cool. And so I'm curious, as you've been talking to your fellow students and doing this kind of work, what's the response been? How do people respond when you sort of point out that you know, RBC is so connected to U of T, but also doing all these, you know, yeah, things? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the major criticisms that comes with this line of work and this particular area of inquiry, and that RBC has funded as sustainable events on campus or those types of things. But at the end of the day, obviously, that funding is going towards good work. And it's not that that work shouldn't happen. It is that they need to find someone else to fund it. Because by allowing and accepting money from RBC or any other big bank or fossil fuel corporation, they are giving them an amount of credibility and bolstering their reputation and presenting the world with this idea that they are a forward-thinking, positive organization, when we know that that's just simply not the case and that's not true. So they get something out of the partnership as well, and arguably they benefit much more than we would in the sense that, yes, we received the funding and yes, we're able to do the work that is good and necessary and needs to take place, but not there are other sources of funding that are available. We just need to seek them out and make sure that, you know, we are being conscious of exactly who we are taking money from, especially at a big research institution like U of T, where there's a lot of sway and a lot of influence from the work that we do and the things that are presented to the public. And by having RBC or other big banks associated with that work, it is not only undermining the work that these people are doing, but it is bolstering their credibility and making it appear as though they are going to be leading the fight to end climate change when they themselves are actually doing the exact opposite and financing more pipelines. Right. And so I'd be interested to know, there's a bunch of research that's been done or some research that's been done that has shown that where banks are most concerned is Mm -hmm. losing youth from joining their banks because Mm -hmm. it's so much harder to leave banks later. Yes. So as you are having these conversations with students uh, and with your fellow students, how do they react? Like, are you having traction? Are they, are you successful? Because it's so early on the stage, like, are they changing their banks or, or are they, have they already started new banking? How's that yeah. going? I think that they're currently, I would say we're in the education phase and that not a lot of people necessarily understand the link between banks and the climate crisis and, you know, are unaware of that impact. I do think there is some general pushback from students because, The reason, you know, these banks are so popular is because they do offer a wide range of services that students need. And especially international students, they, though that it just becomes trickier. And so these institutions, because they have such wide reach and they have so much funding, are just better able to cater to people's needs. But I think that there is a general understanding now among a lot of young people that the behaviors of the past and things that we have been doing previously are no longer going to fly. And I think that especially when you yourself are a, you know, maybe broke college student, you don't have a lot of funds anyway, it is a lot easier for you yourself to make the switch to a credit union or a bank that is less harmful to the environment. And I think there's a real possibility for people to make that individual change. But I think the goal of this campaign specifically is to broaden the scope and make sure that people understand the role that U of T plays. Because Obviously, you know, I can switch my bank and, you know, that is good, great work that needs to happen. But it is much more powerful to have, say, the University of Toronto Student Union, have them switch their bank. So currently they are banking with RBC and they have a much larger account. They have more sway than we do. Right. So another aspect of this campaign is figuring out how we can either have them transition away from RBC or like if that's even a possibility for them, if they're contractually obligated, those things, A, should be made public, but also the UTSU has come out in favor of divestment. And so it is very, you know, it doesn't really make sense for them to hold all those views and then continue to be banking with RBC. That's fascinating. I didn't even think about student unions as that. 
way to go at this. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the main target of the RBC off-campus campaign broadly under Baking with a Better Future. That's their main goal is to target student unions. It varies from campus to campus, obviously, because of each campus banks with a different institution. And there's also a lot of like contract. Sometimes student unions sign 10-year plus long contracts. And so you can't really make any changes in movements, in which case you would focus more on like the actual disruption of, you know, events that RBC sponsors on campus and those types of things. But regardless, I think there is a lot of work to do at a broader level instead of at like an individual, which bank can I use that is most sustainable? And, you know, by broadening the conversation, I think we can have larger impact. Yeah, for sure. Super cool. And so you've sort of mentioned versions of this in the last couple answers. And so I kind of want to zero in on it a little bit more, which is all of the ways in which the fossil fuel companies, but also three banks or just really like the ways in which universities can be like a reputation laundering device for bad actors. You know, I've mentioned, you know, like there's already threw out some shade to the monk school. Um, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But like, it's not unique to U of T. It's not unique to any university, but unquestionably, this is one way to make yourself look better is to launder your reputation through higher learning. Mm -hmm. And so I know that you're you're working on a pledge to sort of begin this work on fossil fuel specifically. Surprise can talk about that. But even if you also have thoughts more generally about the ways in which this is happening and and what students or people can do to sort of push back on it, I'd also be interested. Yeah, absolutely. I think I took a course last year and I was required to listen to a couple episodes of Amy Westerbelt's Drilled podcast, which is phenomenal. And I would recommend all listeners, if you're interested in any of the things that we're chatting about, check out. She's extremely knowledgeable. But she, her work kind of outlines exactly the role that fossil fuel companies play in universities and how exactly they use the structure to bolster their reputation. And it's quite interesting. But at U of T specifically, we don't know currently how the exact amount of money that they receive from fossil fuels, from banks. It's not transparent and it's not publicly available information and it's not compiled into a single data set. And so... We are various people on campus, including myself and other, you know, professors and things are currently looking into that exact structure and figuring out the exact number, like dollar amount that U of T receives from all these companies. But beyond that, because that research is going to take a couple months to, you know, be finalized and published, we are joining, like Climate Justice U of T is joining Fossil Free Research. So it was a campaign founded by um, this woman named Ileana out of Divest Harvard. And it is focused on removing fossil fuel financing from climate research specifically. So it is an international campaign. They have, it's going on in the UK, it's going on in the United States, and also in parts of Canada, although Canada hasn't played as big a role as I think it should, and I think is possible because Canada has a lot of really amazing academic institutions. And so a couple months ago, they came out with a letter where over 500 professors from the broader international community came out and said, you know, we are calling on our universities to ban, uh, to no longer accept fossil fuel financing for climate and energy related research, because it fundamentally undermines the very thing that you are trying to do, right? The purpose of this research is to figure out how we can better address the climate crisis. And by accepting money from fossil fuel companies for this research, it not only, again, gives them this reputational benefit of them being on the front line of changing and altering the way we think about the climate and climate solutions. But it also logistically, even, you know, the integrity of the research itself may not be compromised, but it alters the way you think about the research and what kinds of questions you ask and how you approach certain topics and certain things. And it plays a role, even if it's not like extremely explicit. And so I think it's really, really important that universities, especially U of T, gets on board. And so that's kind of what we are also working on this year is getting a lot more U of T professors to sign on to this letter and then hopefully other universities across Canada getting, you know, more professors there to sign on. Because I think there is there this is a there's a larger movement that's happening and there's been a lot of progress. I know the Cambridge University, I think maybe last week or the week before, announced that they were going to um, have like a campus wide like vote technically on whether they were going to ban fossil fuel funding from climate research which is very interesting and very exciting. So 
there's lots of things happening in that regard. And I think this is a great kind of like beginning stage of like what we can do moving forward. And I think, you know, personally on the individual level, I would love to see the university stop accepting all fossil fuel financing and all, all fossil fuel funds. But right now, this campaign specifically targets climate research because that is the area that is most clear in terms of its direct connection. And I think that it is something that as an academic institution, U of T is a highly ranked school. I'm from the United States. I came to Canada to go to U of T specifically. I think that it does amazing work and has done amazing things. But the fact that we continue to receive funding from these harmful companies really undermines that really valuable work. And one of the criticisms that often comes up in this area is that, you know, the people conducting the research often don't have a say in who their financiers are, or they themselves need to get paid and they need to pay their bills and they need money to conduct the research. And all of those are extremely legitimate and valid criticisms. And in no way am I suggesting that any individual person is a bad actor but more so that as a collective, the university needs to stop accepting fossil fuel financing for climate-related research because the it is just so much more harmful to continue to accept that money than to seek out alternate, fund, alternate funding for these projects. Like the projects themselves should continue just with someone else funding them. Right. It sort of goes back to your thoughts around individual banks, which not right, having exactly. the same kind of impact. These are sort of systemic levers that you can use, but it does rely on other actors to take bigger action to right. free up people to not be sort of set in these catch Right, exactly. And I think that especially a lot of professors that I've spoken to and just kind of like the earlier, you know, we're beginning communication and trying to get more people on board. That is a criticism that comes up a lot. And I completely understand, especially, you know, grad students, professors, these people are doing a ton of work and really, really important work and not getting paid all that much. And so I, I completely understand. And it's a very valid, valid criticism to worry that by signing on to this letter, they're suggesting that their work should not continue at all or have, you know, if the company, fossil fuel company doesn't fund it, who will? And I think that it is up to the university as an institution to seek out those alternate sources of funding and not up to the individual researcher conducting that because they don't have the time, the capacity or the energy or the resources to find those alternate funding sources. Yeah. And like, I think this is an example of something that intuitively most people would understand. Right. right? Exactly. You know, like mm -hmm. no one in the late 80s would have been like, oh, we definitely want a bunch of tobacco companies <laughs> to be right. paying for all of these questions about whether or not tobacco is harmful to health. Right. Right. Like right. you can understand even if they no matter how many mm -hmm. steps away you want to be, even the knowledge itself, that right. is where your funding comes from. Like, to be honest, it almost be one step, which I don't think is enough, mm -hmm. but one step would even be to, to not tell the researcher where the money came from. Right. Like because like you couldn't not. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know that your money is coming from a fossil right. fuel company and that your next grant might not come if you see something you don't like. In, uh, like, I'm not saying that that no one would be tempted. I'm sure that right. pe people are, do very good work despite mm -hmm. being funded by fossil companies. Mm -hmm. But you can see there's at least a percentage of people who might be like, oh, I better tell them what they want. A hundred percent. And I think it you do really run the risk of having these corporations that are responsible for the climate crisis, like having them involved in developing the solutions. And obviously, you know, they have some sort of a role to play people have varying opinions on that. But I think more generally, they don't, they're not in the forefront of the solution because they themselves are the problem. Like they can't solve climate change because their companies cause climate change, you know? So I think that having distance between those things and having them not as involved in the types of questions and inquiries that people are coming up with and researching is really beneficial and will get us closer to creating a fossil-free future and to creating a world in which we are no longer reliant on fossil fuel as our primary energy source. And I think that in order to get there, we have to better understand the exact role that it plays on an institutional structure in a, a university space. And a lot of the things I'm saying are not applicable. You know, they are applicable to U of T, but they're applicable to lots of other universities across Canada, lots of other universities in the United States. Like this is not an isolated incident and U of T itself no longer accepting fossil fuel financing for climate research in and of itself will not prevent every single university immediately. Everyone's not going to get on board automatically, 
But U of T has the opportunity to be a leader in the space and to put itself forward as a leader and the climate, you know, climate energy sustainable campus that they love to brand themselves as. This is their opportunity and this is a step they could take to get somewhat there. And I think it'd be a really missed opportunity if they didn't consider it and really think about it as a future or a possibility at U of T. Right. And, you know, if Exxon or Suncor wants to give money to these things, <laughs> then all they have to do is make themselves no longer a fossil company. <laughs> they have the money. They could easily invest enough money in solar that they could become a solar company. Take all the profits you have, buy a bunch of solar panels somewhere and become a solar company and then invest all the money you want and, and we will stop being mean to you. Right. And I think going back to like the individual versus collective, I think it is, again, important to consider that most of the professors, most people doing this research are not bad actors and are receiving this funding in good faith and want to do good work. But on the other hand, there's very limited transparency at U of T. And there we don't know if some of you know the professors and people who are teaching climate are we don't know about their connections to the fossil fuel industry because that information is not publicly available. So it's also really important to just have increased transparency about these where these previous people worked, like what where they're investing their money. Because, you know, again, it is as a student of the School of the Environment at U of T. I would feel really uncomfortable taking a course from a professor who had really strong ties to the fossil fuel industry. And I'm not saying that's the case. I don't know. But I think it's important that that type of information be public and be available and that U of T just generally becomes more transparent about their funding sources, but also where their professors, like their background and their ties specifically. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Okay. Amazing. So. A little bit of a pivot before I sort of, we're going to, after two more questions, I'm going to come back to how folks mm -hmm. can get involved and support your work. So if folks yeah. are waiting for that, I will get to that. <laughs> I do have two other questions that are a bit more, I don't know if they're personal per se. The mm -hmm. second one is, the first one is more about your thinking. Mm -hmm. But, you know, whenever I we're lucky enough to have someone sort of in the working in the youth activism space, mm -hmm. it it has become such a buzzword in the past like five yeah. years mm -hmm. uh, that I'm interested in hearing from youth yourself mm -hmm. about how you sort of see the role of youth in terms of overall systems change. And if you're, if there's any like ideas you have about what say other organizers could learn mm -hmm. about how to work better with youth and just sort of your perspective generally on the whole ecosystem that exists today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I was born in 2000, you know, the climate crisis, something that I have been hearing about and learning about basically out of the womb. And, you know, I think that it is something that my mom's generation did not grow up experiencing or learning about. And I have kind of come of age at this really critical moment in time where I think that there is a really big possibility for change. But we are also on the cusp of hitting a point at which if we don't make changes, things are like, it, it's a very tricky time. And I think it is very easy to fall into despair and to, you know, rely on youth as the scapegoat and say, young people are going to solve our problems. And I think that that is, you know, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But I think that young people can play a critical role and do play a critical role in climate movements, but that there are structures, institutions and things in place that can make changes now. And so a lot of, you know, there's a lot of reliance on, you know, oh, these people are going to come in and when they become, when they come of age and when they lead these organizations, then things are going to change. Well, some of those people are leading the organizations and some of them are not, but that doesn't mean that there aren't steps and things that we can take right now. For example, like the U.S., they passed the big climate legislation and that's a whole other topic to get into at a different time. And there's a lot of people have lots of opinions about that, but it was the largest climate bill that has been passed by the United States government ever. And in and of itself, that is a really big feat. And that would not have been possible without the work of people involved with Sunrise Movement and other youth organizers and activists. It just was not something that, you know, would have been put on the agenda, something that they would have fought for. And so I think that there is a real possibility for collaboration between youth and like current existing actors and institutions. And they're not like a completely separate outside entity that operate in their own sphere, right? They hold a lot of power and influence. And they can work within the current structure and make changes and influence them in really powerful ways. But I also think it's important to note that like 
the youth movement is wide ranging and there encompasses people people from wide range of backgrounds you know people who are queer disabled people of color you know indigenous youth organizers i think they're those types of people are the people that should be leading at the forefront because their voices really matter and i think especially with this new burgeoning emphasis on youth organizing it is important to highlight the work being done by marginalized youth activists and make sure that their work is being highlighted. But I do think it's a really critical time, but it's also an exciting time. And I, I wake up every day and I say, how can I F over the fossil fuel companies? And that's kind of my motto. One of my professors, I'm not going to name names in case he doesn't want this publicly out, but he said that that was his motto and that's how he combated climate anxiety. And I've kind of taken that on in the sense that it's a larger fight and there's going to be things like U of T divesting their endowment, which is great and really exciting, or the climate strikes that are happening, like the one happening in September that's gearing up to be a really, really big event. There's a lot of exciting things and there's a lot of momentum. And I think that in the climate space, we can kind of get dogged down in the negativity and the pressure of what it actually is, and like the looming doom. But I think that there is a lot of work to be done. And the only way to do it is to figure out a way in yourself to maintain healthy boundaries and to move forward. And, you know, because you can't do the work if you yourself are struggling and, you know, burnt out and all of these things. And it is a clear balance because you have it's it's an ever it's an ever pressing problem. You don't you know, it's not going to be solved overnight. You're not going to go to bed and wake up tomorrow and it's going to be solved and not something that you worry about. Um, so I think you have to focus on the longer end game of where do you want to go? What exactly do you want to do and what is your role? But I think there's a role for everyone, regardless of their background, their education level, whether or not they've been super involved in the climate space before. I think it is really a space where everyone is welcome. And I actually think that having such a broad array of voices is really important. So like at our club at Climate Justice U of T, I myself am part of the School of the Environment but the vast majority of our club members are not. They're from a wide ranging d- different departments. And I think that's great because, you know, yes, these, per- this, these people might not have the intimate knowledge of how exactly solar panels work, but they are involved in other interdisciplinary areas of research or other avenues. And those people exist in the world and they go off and they leave university. And so if we're able to, you know, have a conversation where we're incorporating a wide range of perspectives, we'll just be, we'll get better outcomes. For sure. And you managed to answer my next question <laughs> in that question, which is fantastic, which was how you manage climate anxiety <laughs> and how you feel about it. So uh, perhaps if you have any other thoughts on that, yeah. very interested, please dive in again. But as a secondary question, how can folks get involved in your work? And I would say be, I'd be interested because, you know, we are broadcast out of CIUT, mm-hmm. which is on UVT campus. Yeah. So maybe if there's a way to like talk about how UVT students can get involved, but also Absolutely. how externals can get involved, that'd be great. hundred percent. Yeah. I, sorry, I got, a, I got a little bit ahead of myself. Sometimes I can yep. get a bit of a, a bit of ramble when I talk about these things. I'm very passionate about it. I have lots to say, but yeah, I think just, you know, Again, it is really important for people in the climate space to make sure they take care of themselves in whatever level that may be. And this is something that I learned in like previous organizing experience is that, you know, you have to, even though it feels like you can never take a day off, you have to. You genuinely have to schedule a whole day, an afternoon, a week. It, you need to make it a system, a system that's manageable for you. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. And I think especially with pandemic. I myself have experienced that, you know, it is very easy to get overworked and feel like there's an endless possibility of things that you can do and get involved in. And I think it's really important to allocate your time and target exactly what you think is meaningful and how you can make the biggest impact. And so at Climate Justice U of T, we have our first upcoming meeting on September 15th from six to eight in the Vic Quad, which will be very exciting. We're going to be doing and divestment 101 orientation, chatting about all of our upcoming events and campaigns that we're launching. And we are also going to be having a poster making party the following week on September 20th for the climate strike on the 23rd. So we are having people from like, there's people coming from Mississauga's campus, Scarborough, a bunch of different climate groups on campus for outside of Climate Justice U of T. 
that are coming and joining and we're going to hang out and make posters and have fun and just meet people. I think especially because of the pandemic, there's a real need and urge to have in-person events and things that are enjoyable and positive because, you know, obviously people are showing up because they believe in this, but the reason they continue to show up is because of the community that's being built around the issue. And so hopefully we'll have a good group of people at that. And then we'll have a bunch of us all go to the climate strike together on the 23rd. Um, so even if, you know, you have class that day, we encourage you to skip class, email your professor, let them know why you're not going. We have a template for that if you're interested. But I think there's a lots of ways for U of T students to get involved. And I think more generally outside of the U of T community, it is just important to support the work of youth activists and youth organizing on like a broader level within the city of Toronto, but also in other campuses. And so, you know, they're like UBC, McGill, they also have a lot of really amazing work that's happening and they all are also fighting, you know, some really great fights. And we are not alone in this. There's absolutely a group or an organization or a niche for everyone. No matter what you like to do, there's a way that you can do it in a sustainable climate focused way, whether that's painting, drawing, you know, podcasting, whatever it is, like there's an avenue and a lane for everyone, even if it's not the nitty gritty, how do schools divest in on a structural level, right? If that doesn't interest you, that's completely fine because there's plenty of other work that needs to get done. And I think, you know, we really pride ourselves on making sure that everyone feels welcome and that everyone, regardless of how much they know about the issue, has able to hop in and propose ideas and introduce new campaigns. And I think that's really important and something that we will continue to do moving forward. Amazing. So uh, it's our tradition to give our guests uh, a last thought. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to thank you for being here on the show. And then I'm going to throw to you for a sort of a last thought that will be the mm -hmm. last thing that's on the show that airs on the okay. show and then it'll go out into the world. But before I do, Thank you so much for that fantastic and uplifting conversation to be honest. It's great to hear all the work that is still being done. You know, so many people, I think, who are involved in the climate movement began their work in mm -hmm. some phase, college or university activism. Mm -hmm. Obviously not everybody, but a good percentage of folks. And so it's great to hear about what the sort of next phase and the thinking that goes into how we keep learning and, and building on, on what was done before us. But so thank you for that, Aaron Mackey, the lead organizer with Climate Justice U of T. So great to have you. And yeah, any last thoughts? I would just say that whatever academic institution, whatever group you're a part of, just start thinking in structures and systems because there, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on individual action in the climate space. And that's great. But I think that there is power in numbers and there's a lot that we can do as a group and as a collective. And that's kind of my main takeaway from all of the environmental courses that I've taken at U of T thus far. And that's kind of the main message I like to emphasize um, to people when I'm talking about uh, the issue of climate change.